Oh, do I need my beverage first? If you if you don't have a beverage, it wouldn't be a bad idea to bad time to get one. Amy, do you have your beverage yet? I do. I've got pen. I got paper. I got chapstick. I got logbooks. I got water. <laughs> I well, have water. <laughs> Hold on. I got a beer in my refrigerator. One sec. <laughs> I, I don't have any of the above. I mean, I feel completely unprepared here. Especially the no chapstick. <laughs> the chapstick <laughs> is it right there. That's, That's important up here in the Great White North. I'm waiting to hear Mike really crack that beer. Like I want like a really high quality sound. Is Mike going to get his thing there? Let's see. He's, um, He's I'm he waiting. muted himself. Let's see here. At least he remembered to mute himself. Unlike right. that... Uh, Mayor. What? <laughs> what the heck did I miss? The clip of the mayor that walked away from a town hearing and then went to the bathroom and forgot to mute his mic. Oh, that's hilarious. I thought that was Naked Gun 33 and a third. That actually happens more often than you think. I've had that very thing happen to me. <laughs> Have you really? Oh boy. Uh, we, were shooting a, we were shooting an ethics video for work. And <laughs> oh, Jesus. And I played I played the kind of a main character role in this thing and so I was in like six different scenes and I had to have all these different changes of clothes and after changing my tie and my shirt several times throughout the day I'm like I got to go to the bathroom and I forgot to mute the pack set <laughs> mic that they had <laughs> clipped to my lapel and <laughs> And the guy with the the guy with the camera, of course, he's got you know headphones on. And it, <laughs> here I go, urinating into the toilet, <laughs> right into his ears, <laughs> right in his, and, and he couldn't quite get it quick enough to actually record it. Oh, he didn't record been, it. Oh, no, that's he, too bad. But he was trying to. He was trying to. I was done too quick. So anyway, so yes, a- Amy, that happens. Far more often than you think. It happens far more often to David than most people. I'm only just saying. Ha- only to me once, thankfully. <laughs> it's funny once, never twice. Welcome to Logbook Memories, an aviation podcast about remembering and sharing our past flights. I'm David Allen, a student pilot. And I'm Michael Ladd, a private pilot. Guests on Logbook Memories look back through their pilot logbook to find a particularly interesting, adventurous, enjoyable, scary, or otherwise memorable flight. Then they come on here and share the story of that flight in their own words. Our next guest is ready to go, so let's mic him up. And welcome back to uh, Logbook Memories. Hey, uh, how's it going there, Mike? <laughs> good. How's it going there, Dave? Yeah, it's good. You want, you want to try that one more time? Not really. I'm kind of good with it. You know, this has been a long time since we've done this, and I'm kind of happy been. to just let it go, man. Okay. <laughs> uh, we actually recorded a whole bunch of episodes, and we've been trickling those out, but uh, we've started recording again because we wanted to talk to some of our friends some more. So. Um, yeah, I think we're going to do that right now. We've got our new friend in the hangar, and uh, today we're going to be talking with uh, Amy Gesh. Uh, Amy, welcome to Logbook Memories. Welcome, thanks, guys. Good to see you again. Yeah, yeah. It's been uh, it's been since Oshkosh that we've seen you, but uh, you know, it's it's coming up on the end of the air show season. Um, we're recording this in the first week of November. Hopefully. Hopefully we'll have it out here before the end of the month or maybe early December for Christmas. Um, but yeah, Amy, you're, you've been in aviation. You, you kind of, you dip your toe in a lot of different things, which I think is very cool. You're um, uh, a sales manager at, at, uh, at an aircraft company. And before that, you were doing marketing for another aircraft company while you were in school or just after school. Uh, you're a private pilot with a tailwheel endorsement. You're a sport pilot flight instructor, and you which have a seaplane, cool. which is cool. And you have a seaplane rating. Like, I mean, you do all kinds of stuff. And on top of all that, you own your own airplane. <laughs> it's true. I like to say I specialize in all the fun parts of aviation. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'm down with that. I like the way. <laughs> is that why you carry around the fun meters? Obviously, because I'm I am a fun person. You you are that. <laughs> there is no doubt. Um, you're going to share a story with us here in a little bit. Uh, you actually told me a few minutes ago that you have your logbook open to the appropriate page so you can reminisce. Uh, but before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, your airplane that you own? And, and I think that you, you told us a couple of things about this before the, before we got started, but I, I just want you to share those again, cause it's really slick. 
Right. So to, to go back a little bit to the beginning of the tale, uh, I learned to fly in a J3 Cub and fell in love with the airplane. And, you know, some people, they learn to fly in one thing and they want to go explore other airplanes. And for me, it was like, all right, I've, I found the one and have just always loved Cubs. They've kind of guided a lot of my career and have found me in some very cool companies doing some very fun things. So back when I was learning to fly, I decided, okay, I, I need to buy an airplane. And what I discovered was that most people uh, started to get practical. You know, they would graduate college or they would start their first job or some combination of the above. Then they would, you know, get in a serious relationship. They would buy a house. Then they would have kids. And all of a sudden, you blink and 20 years go by and you say, whatever happened to buying that airplane? So the logical solution was to buy an airplane before any of that became a problem. So <laughs> I had figured... Uh, Folks, that I should buy this an... is wisdom. <laughs> Pay attention to this. <laughs> but, this is... honey, it's not really a problem. I'm just letting you know. Just... <laughs> you In case she's listening. <laughs> yeah, so I had decided that I wanted to buy an airplane by the age of 25 because I figured 25 was about the point where you might start acting like an adult. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't have any good rationale for why that was. It just seemed like you know, everybody was still finding themselves after college, but by 25, they were kind of established. They were getting into a career. They were getting into, again, relationships, you know, bigger purchase decisions, buying cars, all that jazz. So I decided I'm going to find a cup and I want to do it by my 25th birthday. So oh, about a year in advance, I started putting out feelers because the best deals and the best airplanes usually sell before they make it to barnstormers or trade a plane or controller or wherever you find them. And it turns out that in late January of 2014, a friend of mine said, hey, 85 horse PA-11, it's got wheels, floats, and skis, and, you know, here's what the guy's asking, are you interested? And I said, well, I wasn't going to buy something quite this early, but sure, send me the information. And sure enough, I went up, the airplane was only three and a half hours away. It was actually born a J-3, so most people know the J-3 as a rear seat solo airplane, kind of an oddball thing. Uh, you could convert those airplanes to PA-11s. And what was different about the PA-11 from the J-3 is a couple of key things. And But the biggest thing was that you move the fuel tank from the nose, which is what necessitated a rear seat solo in a J-3. You put it up in the wing. And that meant that you had more room. You could slope the windshield farther forward. So technically, they're a little faster. But fast is a very relative term in the scheme of Cubs. So mine was born a J3, it was converted, it was a crop duster for a couple of years, it was a mineral exploration airplane out in Wyoming for a couple of years. Uh, it had a, it was sold at auction for a mechanics lien at one point in time. It's kind of an interesting, interesting history and a number of owners. In fact, I think the longest time that anybody's owned that airplane was somewhere between like 8 and 13 years. So it's not one of those long-lived airplanes. So what does it take to convert... A, a J3 Cub into a PA-11. I mean, it sounds like, you know, moving the gas tank, maybe that's not too big of a deal. Sloping the windshield, that's probably a little bit more of a big deal, I would think. I mean, what what is the, what's the conversion process like on something like this? Is it three weeks, three months? I mean, what, what does it look like? Not quite sure the total time. There's not too much to fabricate. The windshield's pretty straightforward because you actually just buy a different windshield and that's molded with that slope in it. You do, however, need to make a new cowl because a part of the PA-11 is what's called a pressure cowl or it's an enclosed cowl. It doesn't have the cylinders sticking out in the breeze. So it's a little bit more of a modern look, and I think that was probably the main reason that Piper went to it. I think there were some benefits of just more even and consistent, you know, engine temperatures, but I think, on the other hand, it was probably largely an aesthetic thing. I don't think most, most Cubs don't have problems getting too hot or too cold at large. Uh, you could also change out the struts. So PA-11s from the factory had a more streamlined strut, so they were, again, just a tick faster. Uh, I don't know if mine is or isn't. It's kind of an oddball oddball airplane. So what, what kind of missions do you actually fly? I mean, you're up in Minnesota, and what exactly are you, do you do when you fly up there? I mean, do you fly, is it mostly on wheels? I know you have floats, you have skis, you have everything with it. Yeah, so uh, first of all, uh, I flew the airplane a lot more before I took it apart to recover the fuselage. Oh. <laughs> and like any airplane project, I knew it was going to need this work when I bought it. 
Uh, however, airplanes uh, are always going to cost you a little bit more, a little bit sooner, and take a little bit longer to finish, you know, than you than you think. So we are getting close to it, but its primary mission is on wheels. I've not had it on floats in my ownership. I did put float fittings on it. Um, skis, I haven't had it flying in the winter yet, but it does have a set of straight skis on it. And other than the fact that you uh, may end up with cold fingers and toes, ski flying is actually an absolute blast. But a lot of times what I would do is I would just leave work a little bit early. I'd go put around in the cub for, you know, 15 to 30 minutes and my day would get better. If I had a really bad day, I would leave during lunch and go fly. <laughs> and then I would come back with a greatly improved attitude. That's funny how that happens. So when you talk about um, flying an air, uh, a cub from from the back seat versus the front seat, do you have a do you have a preference on front seat or back seat? I mean, I would think that I would think that from the front seat would be easier because you could see over the cowl and you're closer to the instruments. But what do you what do you personally believe? I've spent more time flying from the front seat in recent history, so I kind of prefer that now. It is a little bit easier to see. It's also a little bit easier to reach everything. When you're flying a J3 from the back, if you got to pull the carb heat on, there's there's a bit of a reach involved, whereas uh, sitting in the front seat of a PA-11, everything's kind of right around you. So it's, it's a, it feels a little bit like cheating after sitting in the back seat of a Cub, but sometimes that's okay. <laughs> I mean, using a, you know, Garmin 430 is a little bit like cheating after growing up on ADFs too, but I still wouldn't turn back. Yeah, no. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so normally when we start these conversations about uh, some kind of a logbook memory, we've got some kind of an idea of the story you're going to tell, or our guest is going to tell, or we've heard a little bit, but Mike and I are actually walking into this one totally blind. We have Clueless. we have no idea what you're about to share with us, and we're just going to be absolutely as along for the ride as as the audience. So we're really excited. Why don't you go ahead and, and share us the story of your logbook memory? All right. Well, we are going to throw it back to June 15th of 2010. And I'll give you a little bit of background. So in mid-June every year, they hold a fly-in up at the uh, Lock Haven Airport. It's uh, Piper Memorial Airport. And it's often referred to as a homecoming of Cubs. It's called the Sentimental Journey to Cub Haven Fly-In. And now, when I had first gone to take my check ride, my instructor actually had to leave, my primary instructor. He left me with one of his uh, other instructors, you know, to kind of do the final prep on the check ride. But he said, hey, I've got to take this cub out to Lock Haven. So uh, here's your endorsement and, you know, call me and let me know how it goes. And he takes off and heads to central Pennsylvania. And fun fact, all of that went really well until the examiner showed up and he had forgotten to sign the endorsement. And I'm leaving for an internship in Texas, like in the next three days. So we are down to the wire. So we call him, we track him down, we get his uh, endorsement faxed, and the examiner was willing to take it and everything. And yeah, long story short, check ride goes through just fine. That's my first experience with Lock Haven is being stranded back in Wisconsin, wondering if I'm going to be able to take my check ride. And in 2009, I had the opportunity to go as a flight of two, but in 2010, we actually got five airplanes that were going to go. We had three J3 Cubs, we had a PA-12, and then we also had a Luscombe coming along. And we had gotten weathered out for at least a day or two, where we would wake up at five in the morning, check the weather, kind of all call each other and figure out that, nope, we're not going anywhere today. So finally, uh, June, June 15th, rather, uh, was like a Tuesday. So we've already been weathered out a minimum of one day, possibly two. Can't quite remember. We get up, sun shining, forecasts are good. We know we got to get moving because there's weather coming behind it. So this is actually a, a tale of, you know, some not great flying experiences that led to, but you know what they say about uh, good judgment is it comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. Unfortunately, so that is the truth. It is, it is. And now you've got five airplanes uh, with six people in them. And by the way, one of these airplanes was a student on their first long cross-country solo. So that airplane's going to take off first because we can't assist this, you know, student with their solo. And we're stringing it along and I end up being like fourth out of the five airplanes. And we start climbing out. We see a little bit of haze. No big deal. You know, we'll, we'll pop through the haze and keep on our way, which is really great until the haze 
doesn't get lighter. It gets thicker. And all of a sudden you realize this isn't haze. This is a cloud. And now all of a sudden you're, you're pushing the stick forward going, okay, now what? You know, you got five airplanes. You, we haven't made it that far. We've made it a couple of miles and you're doing your best to keep an eye on the airplane ahead of you to try and figure out where are we going and what are we doing? You don't have radios, do you? You know, we kind of did, but the airplane that I had uh, was not, didn't have a good radio in it. And in fact, when you take off in this airplane, you know, one thing that a cub is at least going to expect out of you is it it expects your attention, which means that I had a GPS. It was turned off and it was tucked next to my leg so that it didn't fall down or get in the way. A handheld is somewhere tucked over waiting for us to get to our first fuel stop when I'm going to need to call for something. It's not you know, set up for communication. And, you know, because you don't have a permanent antenna, or at least we didn't in this airplane, it's, you know, basically good for listening only, not really for transmitting. And now, as this uh, overcast starts to get a little bit thicker and it starts to get a little lower to the ground, now all of a sudden, it I'm doing the best I can to just not lose sight of the airplane in front of me. And when you're keeping your eyes outside so much, uh, you're not keeping track of where you are on a map because the last thing you're going to do is take your eyes from outside the cockpit, put them inside the cockpit. And now you're starting to think, you know, I, I can't lose that other airplane. That, and I really hope that other airplane knows where on earth it's going because I sure as heck do not. And now we're kind of poking along, trying to figure out where we're going, what we're doing. And this is the point where, you like to reassure yourself flying in a cub that what's okay, I can land wherever I want to land, right? If, if push really comes to shove, I've got options in this airplane. And that feels like a really great idea when it's, you know, clear in a million and you're like, yeah, sure, I could land in that field. When well, now you're sitting here thinking, I don't know where I am. I don't know whose field that is. I don't know what condition it's in. There's four other airplanes out here. I can kind of see one of them and I'm really trying to keep up. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And, you know, your mouth is getting dry, all of that. It was not a fun experience. This feels like an awful lot of things are beginning to pile up all at once, none of which individually are a big deal. But it sounds like things are starting to kind of build pretty rather quickly. Absolutely. And now we're starting to maneuver a little bit, too, as the lead airplane uh, you know, is now, and keep in mind that our lead airplane started out being a student. So they're student. sitting there. Exactly. So they're sitting there trying to, and again, the forecasts were good. You looked out the window, everything looked good. I've and, already got the hair on my arm standing up thinking about this. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, you, your, your mouth goes dry, but you know, and you're, you're sitting there thinking like, what, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Now at this point, the lead airplane has kind of dropped back and, and, has been supplanted by the PA-12. And the PA-12 sitting here formulating something. But in the meantime, now we're starting to maneuver to try and pick our way to some good weather. Uh, southeastern Wisconsin has a fair amount of airports, but they're not always where you need them to be. You need to be able to find them. You need to be able to get to them. And we're finding pockets of this nasty weather. And <laughs> I've, I've never wanted to be on the ground quite so much uh, in any any flight. Now, eventually... We do make it to a little airport called Sylvania. And I did not quite kiss the grass, but I thought very long and hard about it. And we all kind of trickle in. And all I can think is, you know, what what could have gone differently? What could have gone wrong? At that point, you are so saturated with everything that's going on that you're not thinking about all these other factors about, you know, where am I going to be? in five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, where was the weather moving? And you're doing your best just to keep track of the airplane in front of you. So you're not sitting there formulating options and you're focused on just not losing the airplane ahead of you. And you are hoping that the other airplane knows what's going on. So at, at, at what point during this had, did, let me, let me try to (laughs) ask this question uh, in a way that makes sense. Were you, at any point, like looking at a line that you were just willing to not cross and to the point that you would have been like, okay, 
I'm out. The rest of you go on. Best of luck. Or were you just focused on fly the airplane? Like, like what? what's your exit strategy if things get worse, I guess is what I'm looking at. See, at this point, I didn't really have one. And that's why this flight was really important for me. Um, you know, I kept thinking that, you know, we need to land, we need to land. This is how accidents happen. This is not good. Like, you know, we've gotten ourselves into a situation. But also being in a group, you didn't want to deviate because you didn't know who behind you was relying on that. Now, I was basically by this point about the last airplane. So now my biggest concern is they're not going to know that I've gotten left behind because they're going to be so concerned flying around. And I remember thinking, you know, at what point in time do I land somewhere? At what point in time do I just say, you know, I've got an option and I'm going to take it. And at that point, I had about 330 hours of flying time, but it had all been good weather flying. This was really my first encounter with weather. And it brought a lot of questions that I had never thought about having to answer. You know, what what are the, it's, it's really easy to think about, hey, what are my minimums, this, that, and the other. And flying, in, there's different aspects to flying as a group as well. I think it's easy to become complacent and assume that someone else knows what's going on or they're in front, so they're going to formulate the plan. I can't say with, with certainty what the other people in that flight were thinking. All I know is that I knew that I was not in a situation that I was very personally comfortable with, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get out of it. So, I mean, thinking back during the actual flight itself, was there a point that you actually thought of? I know you were focusing on the plane in front of you and the people behind you, but did you actually think about deviating and or turning around or calling the whole thing off? Yes and no. Um, I knew that I wanted to be on the ground. I knew that I wasn't happy with the current situation. But at the same time, remember, I, I, I sit on my charts when I take off in the Cubs so that they don't blow away. Sure. And I have the GPS next to me. Well, I, the GPS isn't even turned on. I can turn it on and it's going to, but then I have to take my eyes, put them back inside the cockpit, not look where I'm going. And keep in mind that at one point in time, I looked over at the altimeter and I think we were at about 300 feet. So we had gone from a day wow. that was forecast to be clear in a million to something that had changed very, very dramatically. And now you're you're not on the edge of that system anymore, right? You are You're in the middle of it. You're in it, yeah. So it's not like you're following uh. the edge. So you're sitting there thinking, like, do I try and turn this thing on? What do I do? Where do I go? Whereas the other people behind me, you know, I could do a 180, but is it actually better behind me or not? Because remember, we've been turning and maneuvering trying to pick our way around this because at that point we still thought it was fairly isolated. So you wound up in, uh, what was the airport again? You said Sylvan. It's called Sylvania. It's uh, Sylvania. actually, yeah, it's right next to, right next to a highway. Um, and I think it has an East West runway as I recall. And what's interesting is, so we had only flown for an hour. Uh, we had made it decidedly less than an hour's worth of travel would normally take you. And my, my logbook entry here says first stop towards Lock Haven, crappy weather, you know, short leg, no lakefront route, one landing grass. That's all it tells you. We were going to follow the lakefront down uh, through Chicago. And because the, the lakefront, as we took off, suddenly found out that, hey, that's not going to be an option. It's very clearly got some, got some weather issues. So we end up going around uh, the west side of the city. And this where we landed is still north of Chicago. So we're still kind of picking our way around. We've, you know, not made it far at all. Did you even know where you were? <laughs> I did not. When you landed? Okay. Nope. I mean, I think I recognized it because I knew the airport. Uh, I had driven from Milwaukee to Chicago a number of times, and people had told me, oh, that's Sylvania Airport. But that was the first time I had been there. And, uh, I mean, you you land and you sit there and you take a minute after you shut the airplane down and and you're shaking because you're like, you know, you're just overwhelmed with all the adrenaline. And now it's starting. You're kind of coming down off of that, like, oh, I've made it. Like, I'm on the ground. And uh, here we are. Now what? So, I mean, at this point, what's your question? Like, uh, my question is, okay, <laughs> I have you got us here, <laughs> whoever's in the lead plane, you know, what? what's your plan now? I mean, are they planning to leave Sylvania and, and press on or like... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are questions. I'm like, thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> bye-bye. <laughs> Yeah. Like, well, I'm like, I brought a tent and I'm staying here and you guys have fun, but I'm not leaving. 
Right. So, you know, complicating factors, and again, this is why this was such a, a learning situation, is, yeah, every airplane had gear to camp with. So in theory, any one of us could have could have done so. But we also know that, and we had known from the get-go that there was weather coming in. Well, now it's to the point where, you know, if we don't go somewhere now, we will be stuck here. And that's kind of a, kind of a, kind of a problem. So, at the time, we, you know, were calling around, and, and yes, that's right, calling around, trying to figure out what the uh, automated weather observation stations were saying. Keep in mind that 2010 was, in fact, pre-4-flight. I know that people do not remember that time. Uh, handheld GPSs were still kind of, uh, kind of cool, and a fair amount of them at that point didn't have weather. So we were sitting there kind of formulating, what are we going to do next? Where are we going to go? How are we going to get out of here? We know there's good weather. But this kind of unforecast little pop-up, like we got to figure a way around this because, you know, it's, it's not going to get better. It's, and in fact, at that point, we knew what we had flown through to get there. And not one of us wanted to turn back and go home through it because it was a, a hair-raising adventure. And, you know, why do that again? So we sit and we figure and we figure and, you know, our uh, most senior pilot, you know, says, hey, you know what, I'm going to take the lead. I'm not like, obviously, I'm not putting a student out for this. But basically, here's our only option. It gets good around Valparaiso, Indiana. Um, but it might be more of this to get there. But, you know, back home isn't isn't good. It, in fact, it's gotten worse. And, you know, we can't really go too far west and we can't really go too far east between airspace and the fact that the weather was pretty similar all around. So at that point, uh, the option was take off, plug our way through, and kind of kind of punch through it. And it was uh, it was uh, quite a quite a job of salesmanship to get us all to agree to do that. But we also knew that we were in fact stuck if we did anything else. And this well, that was, sim was actually my next question was so you were sold on this. Uh, <laughs> you, you agreed with this. <laughs> very reluctantly, but uh, you know and I'm certainly not not going to defend this. That's part of why this flight was was really instrumental for me is, you know, we did have a very senior pilot and he said, hey, look, here's what we're going to do. You know, we're going to go in this order. We're going to go at this speed. Here's the route. Here's probably the worst section of it. And here's your outs. That's a big thing. Uh, all of us at some point in time in our flying careers have probably been in a situation that's less than ideal. Hopefully not to the point where you say, you know, if you're me, you're like, I'm never doing this again. I'm never doing this again. I'm never, ever, 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 ever going to do this. This is like the worst thing that I can imagine. Um, but you, it's all about managing what you can. And in that case, we knew we couldn't manage the weather. You know, you can argue that, hey, you made a mistake pressing on. But at this point, you're kind of like, well, that's water under the bridge. What do we do now? And, and how can we manage what we need to do? and what's going to be safe. So we did brief the flight and we made it to Valparaiso. And I still remember, you know, it was it was more of the same for probably 10 to 15 minutes. It felt like an hour and a half. And then eventually it, uh, um, I won't say quite cleared up. We eventually did get to clear weather, but that first stop at some point, the ceilings finally become definite and you can see under them and you know that hey i'm not in this mist and fog anymore like i am in clear air underneath some clouds and it was like the most beautiful beautiful feeling in the entire world I, i'm sure <laughs> who'd have thunk that being able to see ahead of you was important right or below you yeah well at one point i you know and again 2010 was pre-me having an iPhone. I think it, it existed at that point, but I did not have one. So I'm still sitting there carrying a digital SLR camera, and I remember looking out and seeing this really interesting bridge that goes over Cory south of Chicago. And it's weird because you see this big, sheer, like, rock face where the quarry goes, and then there's a highway that goes over it. And it looks like this tiny, tiny little ribbon over this just vast nothingness below it. And I picked up the camera and I took a picture. And I remember thinking like, oh, the weather's finally gotten good enough that I can take a picture. And you look back at it and it is murky. I mean, all of my experience has been on these clear in a million days or days where visibility and ceiling are really never an issue. 
And I look back on that and I think, my God, I'm so glad that I'm not there right now. And I made a pact saying, I will never do this ever again. Like I've made it through here. This was a very good learning process because now I know that, hey, I managed to get myself out of that situation. But it also meant that if I never want to be in this situation again, I have to be much more proactive. I have to think about what's my out ahead of time instead of waiting till we're stuck at an airport you know, staring down the barrel of, of really nasty weather for the next couple of days. Was that something that was discussed when you briefed? Um, I know in the first leg you were stuck focusing on the plane in front of you and possibly the people behind you doing the same thing to your plane. But is that something that you discuss that, you know, if I, if it gets too uncomfortable, I'm stopping, I'm going here. Did you pay, pay, pay closer attention to the, your alternates? And, and, and root on your next leg? I pay closer attention to it, but, you know, at that time, I was still very much in the mode of, hey, I'm going to follow along and do what these people say uh, because I don't think I have a better option. And that's really where a lot of the education comes in. You know, you can look at how many hours are in a logbook, but they don't tell you what's in those hours. So, you know, a fair amount of people would say, hey, at 330 hours, you should have known better. And maybe I should have, but my experience did not you know, include a lot of weather flying. A Cub by its nature is not a poor weather airplane. We don't spend our time, you know, trying to get through <laughs> crappy through weather. Yeah. No, we, we are not on board with that. Uh, so what really surprised me is, you know, there's an element of get their itis. There's an element of peer pressure. You know, I don't want to be left behind. And, you know, all those factors come together. And when you finally you know, get where you're going, you get to a point where your brain isn't so focused on survival, where you realize, you know, there's a lot to be learned from this, and I should never put myself in a position like that again. Uh, I have often told people that I've flown with for work, uh, we took an airplane out to Maine, and I, I said, you know, I'm not comfortable with this weather. And frankly, if I'm in this airplane, I don't care if you are, I'm not going. And if you have that conversation from the get-go, it lays the groundwork for a good working relationship with the person that you're flying with. You understand what's important to each other, and then you know that you're not going to put that other person into you know, a compromising situation. If any one of us had had that conversation ahead of time or even at our stop in Sylvania, I think we would have been in a much better spot. But right. I didn't know to do that. Have you discussed this? Um, it, it sounds like you had somebody who was kind of the the very experienced pilot who was kind of the leader uh was kind of driving the bus here um and and it sounds like you know this person really did know what they were talking about and what they were doing um but has there been any discussion since this since this trip about hey you know i i didn't really feel comfortable with this and next time if this happens again like i'm not like 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 did, did, was there an acknowledgement of maybe this was a situation that he shouldn't have brought the team through or like, how, how did that go? Or did this was like, yeah, I told you it was work. I mean, what was, what was the attitude there even, you know, si since this event nine years ago? Or have you never talked to them again? <laughs> <laughs> no, we are, we are still in, in contact. I consider him a good friend and mentor. Good. And, you know, one of the things that was interesting about this particular person is very easygoing pilot, very much someone that said, you know, hey, you got to do what's right for you. Like you have to do what's safe, but also was very encouraging about, you know, you have to figure out what is acceptable for your skill level, what is acceptable. Because he always said, uh, hey, look, when I fly with someone, because he was also an instructor, he said, when I fly with someone, I will go to, you know, one of three limits, depending upon who reaches what first. He's like the airplane's limit the student's limit, or mine. I will not let somebody get beyond that. Sometimes your personal limitations come before the limitations of what the airplane can do. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes, you know, you as an instructor may say, you know what, this isn't right for me before your student realizes it. So you have to keep all those differing things uh, at play. So we did have a good discussion on that. And, you know, his whole point of, of view is you need to do what you as a pilot feel safe doing. And, you know, there's a learning experience to be had to take a look back at it and say, we weren't prepared for the weather to be worse than expected. We just figured we were going to take off. We were going to fly off in a line. 
So if you are flying in a group, you know, the lesson there was, yeah, we should have talked about that. We didn't think about it. We were just getting out the door because we knew we had this little sliver of time where the weather was good to get on our merry way. Has this um, changed your personal limits? (laughs) I know I have personal limits and I came very close to hitting them once and but I know other people that have um, gone through I guess not I don't want to say the same thing or very even similar but situations where um, they kind of prove to themselves that they can exceed those limits at at times in certain situations in in a a safe way and uh, it's kind of let them fly further and more often um, because those limits have increased. So, you know, it's not visibility, you know, 10 miles and ceilings at 20,000. Now, you know, now they can go a little bit lower. Right. Absolutely. You know, I have never to this day flown in weather as bad as that day. And I, I held too true to that. But what was really valuable for me as a fairly young pilot, I mean, I had been flying just about two years at that time. And most of that was, you know, relatively near the place where I learned to fly. There was some cross-country work, but not to the extent of we're going to take an 800-mile trip or 700-mile or whatever it was. Um, But the key takeaway for me was, you know, at what point am I uncomfortable? And I knew that regardless of what the weather looked like in terms of numbers, I didn't ever want to feel the way I had felt. You know, I knew that um, I was lost, if we're being honest. I mean, if I had needed to find a place to go, I wouldn't have had any idea. I barely knew which way was up because I was just so overloaded. Uh, I knew that I was not comfortable with my options in terms of where am I going to go? Where are the obstacles? Because, by the way, if you don't know where you're going, you don't know um, what is out there to avoid. So where this really came in is actually my first trip to Sun and Fun, which was in March of 2011. And I was working for a company out of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and I was taking... Uh, taking an airplane down there, and we got stuck between two weather systems. And I remember getting to a point where uh, I was going near a 500-foot tower, and it was above me. And I thought, you know what? I've been in this situation before, and I didn't like it. And before it got as bad as I had been in before, turned myself around and had absolutely no shame doing it. And it's not the first time that I've turned around and gone right back the way I came when I've seen weather that I've not, not been comfortable with. I think for me, listening to you tell this story, I mean, I'm a couple of things. Number one, I'm on the edge of my seat. Like, when is this going to get better? When is this going to get better? And it just sounds like, <laughs> I know, you know, it's, right. I mean, it's it not. sounds like this, like I'm wait, I'm like, did she, I'm almost like, did she live? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Did she make it out alive? <laughs> you know? but, um, Boy, I can't wait to hear the end of it. I hope she does. I hope she makes it. But um, I think one of the biggest things, if if there's um if there's a, a a positive note on this uh, if there's a positive thing that did go on this story is that pilots are going to be doing three things they're going to be aviating they're going to be navigating and they're going to be communicating and if they're doing it right they're doing it in that order and as overwhelmed as you were it sounds like you stuck to just the aviating and it sounds like if you had tried to pick up the GPS and figure out where you were, um, it, things may have gone badly. And if you had tried to pick up the radio and communicate that things may have gone badly and knowing that, knowing the limitations that you had in the current situation, you limited yourself to what you had the bandwidth to do. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, the key thing there for me was that I did what I could and then was able to get through it and think about what would have prevented this? What would have what would I have done differently if I could do this all over again? So what would you do differently if you did this all over again? Take yourself back, if, if it's okay, take yourself back to that moment when you guys are like, this is, this is good weather, it's clear in a million we're going to take off. And as you're progressing, at what moment would you have been like, nope, I'm out? Or, and the, the other, and the other side of that question is, 
you you now have a lot more flying experience. Would you feel comfortable today making that flight or would you still bail even having this more experience and more knowledge today? Would you would you say, no, I'm out? I would have totally bailed on that on that flight if I were to do it today. In fact, I would have I would have bailed earlier. Key thing with flying uh, several different airplanes. One we had, you know, again, we had a mix of pilot experience levels. We had a mix of aircraft types, three different airplane types. And then we had the wild card, which was the weather. Nowhere in our consideration had we thought about what happens when we need to divert. A lot of times when you do need to divert as a group, you know, you're kind of, you know what's coming, right? You're looking at weather on the horizon. You're kind of chatting a little bit before it happens. This all happened so fast. And keep in mind that it happened as we were, you know, beginning this gradual climb out. I mean, to the point where you look back and you're like, you know, my goodness, where, where, where'd the airport go? Where, where, what do I even go back to? And I, from what I can tell, the sun was still shining at the airport, but we couldn't see it. So now when I fly with another airplane, whether it be one or two or any additional, we talk about, hey, we're thinking about where we're going, you know, and here's the route. We had done that on this flight, but what we hadn't considered is if the weather's bad, we're going to look here, here, or here. And if it you know, is not passable, here's where we're going to go. Because that would have told me at least uh, as I'm taking off and as I'm traveling, I know about how fast I'm going. And that means that I know in 10 minutes, I have an option in five minutes, I have an option and it's to the right or it's to the left or it's right in front of me. That didn't even cross my mind. So when I got into that situation, there was, I felt like there was nothing I could do except try to not lose the little yellow airplane that I was following. Yeah, I think that's a big one is being able to plan ahead for every contingency. And you'll never plan ahead for every contingency, but it sounds like um, you hadn't, no one had planned for any contingency at this point. So uh, at that point, you really are flying by the seat of your pants. Um, And, but now I think, I think we've learned, you've, you've learned and shared with us that, yeah, you've got to, Um, be ready for whatever that is and have those options. And I like that you said, okay, if things are bad, but I know in five minutes, I know in in three miles, you know, or six miles, I have something that I can bail on. I can go here and be safe and reevaluate. That's, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. And it's, and it's very easy too, as you fly with these more experienced pilots, I was, you know, not the least experienced, but far from the most experienced It's easy to settle into complacency and think, you know what, they know what they're doing. And what I've learned since then is, to some extent, it doesn't matter if they know what they're doing. I know what I'm comfortable with and what I'm not comfortable with. To this day, I've, you know, talked to other pilots where we've been on a group flight and I've told them, you know what, if you're comfortable with this weather, that's fine. Go ahead, take off. I'm not going to be offended, but I'm not going to go with you. And of course, the goal there is that you've let someone else choose their personal minimums. And, you know, if my minimums are higher than yours, that's fine. You're more comfortable in other, you know, flight situations that I am not. Uh, otherwise, there's the option for me as, as someone that maybe has lower minimums to carry on without you as long as it is legal and safe and prudent to do so. Wow. Well, cool. Um I'm guessing that that's probably one of those one of those flights where you learned more than you know uh, fifteen hours of flight with an instructor. For. Yeah, well, <laughs> definitely more than you bargained for. Yeah, for sure. Wow, what a story. Well, that's something else. I mean, I've, I've flown with somebody once before that I that kind of scared me, and I don't know if I would ever fly with him again, regardless of the weather or visibility. Um. But, but now you know that, to stand up for yourself, and that's the right. key thing. And I didn't really know that before. But the fact that you actually knew this, this the gentleman that, that kind of took control of this and trusted him enough that he wouldn't put you guys intentionally in harm's way either seems to make that a little bit easier of a decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I think about with that flight is, so I went to school for uh, marketing and aviation management. I did a double major. But the university also had a professional flight program. So you've got all these 18, 19-year-old kids who are just learning to fly, some of whom already have their private pilot licenses, some of them who are just working on that. And when you put all these young people together, it soon becomes a 
the quintessential pilot skills measuring contest. Well, I flew in this weather and I flew in that weather. And I had learned, you know, that summer that there's no honor in saying how bad of weather you flew in. It's nothing to brag about. It is. And in fact, I, I lost a college classmate to a weather accident. And all I could think about is, you know, as, as my mother would say there, but for the grace of God, go I. It could have been me. But two, how fortunate I was to have had that experienced pilot to say, here's how we're going to get out of this. You know, and I managed to get out of it and then came to the realization that just because I did it once does not mean that I'm comfortable doing it again. Been there, done that, got the proverbial t-shirt, don't need to do it again. Agreed. So if you were to sum this up into maybe one or two succinct sentences, what would you tell 2009 you before you take this flight to give yourself permission to be the pilot that you know you should be back then? That's a very good question. I think the big takeaway that uh, or big piece of advice that I would give myself is know where you are, know what your plan is. Don't rely on following somebody else. Even if you think that, Hey, everything's going to be okay because anything could happen. That person could get lost and you'd be following them right along. Perfect. All right. Wow. Man, thanks, Amy, for sharing that. That was quite a story. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Thanks. You I'm going to be worried about you for a week now. <laughs> well, I know a lot of people share fun flights they've taken, but as a pilot, this was probably the most developmental flight I ever took. It was the thing that made me grow the most because I realized that I had to stand up for myself. And like I said, it's not, you know, since then I've turned around due to weather numerous times. And I've turned around when there's been other pilots flying with me and says, we can make it, we can make it. And I said, you know, if you feel safe and comfortable doing so, that's great. I'm not going to. But it gave me the confidence to say, this is not for me, and I'm not going to be bullied into doing something that I don't feel safe doing. Perfect. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's great. Um, and there's, you know, the thing is, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still just a student pilot, and, you know, I, 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 I can look at using the Mark One eyeball and and see when there's a, you know, a thunderstorm coming with, and because I, I fly out of Florida and I can, I can see rain, you know, but dealing with haze and mist and, and that kind of weather is just, it's not something I'm used to. If there's fog, you know, then you don't take off and wait, you wait till it burns off and it's, you know, by, by nine 30, it's gone. And we just have very little of that, but to see, I'm visualizing in my mind's eye what you described and that the weather that you described sounds absolutely terrifying to me. Like I would, I would just be a ball of goo in the cockpit trying to figure out where I'm going to go. So, um, yeah, it just, I, I think that it's important that we really understand weather and I can absolutely see how the chain of events could lead up to somebody not feeling comfortable, but just saying, well, I'm, I only have 150 hours or 300 hours and you've got, you know, 4,000 hours. You obviously know more than I do. So you obviously know you've been, clearly you've been in this situation before. You must know that this is going to be okay. And you must have seen this very thing before and okay, I'll just follow you. And I can see how that can really get somebody into, to a lot of trouble. It, it can. And the other you know, big thing that I learned was it's okay if somebody is comfortable with something that you're not. You know, so often that we think that and here's this pilot that I really look up to. And to this day, you know, again, good friends with this pilot have nothing but respect for him. But I've also learned that I can respect someone as a pilot. I can consider them a safe and conscientious pilot. And I can still find there to be situations where I'm not going to fly in the same weather or same winds or same aircraft, any of those things that they do. Good. Very good, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's been awesome. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, happy to, happy to be there. Like I said, not necessarily a happy story, but I think it's important uh, to take a look back at those, those tales where things didn't go quite as well, but they're absolutely critical learning experiences. I have a, uh, one quick question for you, off topic. 
because you have your logbook full of memories there, how many pl- different planes have you flown? Types. I, I don't know. Uh, not necessarily a lot. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I would I would say probably less than ten. The vast majority of it is in some cub or cub derivative. So I've got okay. my my experience is deep in one mark, but not broad. So you are big. You have a seaplane rating, and you love apparently, obviously, working with uh, uh, a company that sells amphibious floats for planes. Um, what's your what is your dream plane? Well, uh, I'm pretty close to having having it done because I think the the dream, dream plane is the one that you own. Uh, in an ideal world, there would be more than one. I would, because I, you know, I, I need an airplane on floats on amphibs. I'd like it to be a super cub. Uh, you need an airplane on wheels. Kind of got that. I could use a traveling airplane. I wouldn't mind if that was like a beach eighteen or something like that. Uh, and then nice. I need an airplane to go upside down. Sure. But you really can't. It's, it's like it's like potato chips. You can't have just one. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. When when we asked you to be a guest on this show and to go back through your logbook and and pick a flight, did your mind immediately go to this flight, or did you have to kind of mull it over? You know, I thought about it a little bit. There's a couple that are high points, and I tried to think, well, which ones are really, you know, monumental in me as a pilot, whether because it was such a fun experience or not. But I kept coming back to this one because you, when you have an experience as intense as that, or at least intense for me, it's not something that you can shake, and it, it hangs with you. And I've been grateful to have learned that lesson relatively early in my flying career ever since. Well, I hope that other people who are listening to this have been able to learn a little bit of, of that lesson as well. Now that you know you you you've got it right, <laughs> you you you've learned something here. Don't um, need to do it again. <laughs> I'm hoping that maybe somebody else picked that up too. If if it was even a little nugget of information out of there, so be bold um, to say something. Don't necessarily be bold to just go do something you're not comfortable doing. So cool. Well put. Where uh, where can people find you? Uh, find out about Amy Gesh on the internet, and I know that we can find you at at air shows and events. And you know, you work for a company that can put those floats on that cub if you wanted to. Uh, what uh, where can people find you and get more information about you? It's true. So you can always find me if you go to the Whip Air website. It's uh, w i p as in Papa a i r e dot com. It's got all my contact info. Uh, otherwise, if you like pictures of dogs, ice cream, and cubs, uh, mostly active on Instagram these days, and it's just at Amy Gesh. And it's G-E-S-C-H. Sometimes people forget that, that C in the middle. <laughs> Good. I got it in the right order. Cool. All right. Or like you said, at the air shows with the uh, fun meter pins. Yes. We even have a giant fun meter now. So if you see a giant fun meter, you're probably in the right spot. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's great. All right, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. This has been a lot of fun, and uh, we love uh, we love talking to you, and we can't wait to see you at the next event. Um, probably not going to see you until next year, but we are winding down the season, so we'll be looking forward to seeing you early next year in the season. Thank yeah. you, Amy. We'll see you then. Thanks so much for listening to Logbook Memories. If you'd like to share a memory from your logbook, drop us an email to stories at logbookmemories.com. That's stories at logbookmemories.com. And since we are just starting out, it would mean the world to us if you left a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you really want to help us out, maybe write a short review telling the world how awesome we are. Don't forget to share us with your friends. We'll catch you on the next episode of Logbook Memories. Memories.